I don't want to be segregated into a Black community of artists. I don't think it's important the color of the artist. I think the color of his work is important. And I think his work is the important thing. But this doesn't seem to work. It really doesn't. Everyone sees your color. The artist, unfortunately, is a social part of what he does. He was able to do that because he was like a San Francisco artist. This was like a time when like white people, and that includes white artists, were in some ways differentiating themselves through the critique of media, which is like what generated basically what our understandings of like whiteness are, right? Hi, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Michelle Herman. I work as the head of digital experience here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been building the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These more than 2,500 long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. This episode is the fifth in a series of six, each curated by a contemporary artist in response to, and in conversation with, past speakers from the Archives Oral History Program. Our guest is Carolyn Lazard. Hi, my name is Carolyn Lazard. I'm an artist based in New York and Philadelphia, and I work across many mediums and forms, but I spend most of my time in video, sculpture, and installation. In my practice, I'm interested in the relationship between debility, care, and dependency, and how our collective indebtedness or our need for each other has a generative and capacious impact on the world. I think a lot about accessibility as a praxis, a way of being and doing that can really reshape our relationship to aesthetics, institutions, and even the very way we experience and understand art spectatorship. In this episode, Lazard delves into the oral histories of Emma Amos and Bruce Connor. Emma Amos was an artist based in New York City. She was born in 1937, worked from the 1950s through till her death in 2020. She worked primarily in painting, and her practice expanded to include printmaking, textiles, and photography. Amos was interested in the representation of Blackness, Black womanhood, also inclusive of self-portraiture, domesticity, and the question of subjectivity in Western art history. She was also a member of a few critically art historically significant collectives, Spiral, Heresies, and the Guerrilla Girls. Amos's oral history was conducted by Al Murray, a former naval combat artist and their conversation took place in October 1968, mere months after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the passage of the Fair Housing Act. The tapes from that interview were returned to Amos after transcription, as was the practice at the time. So the transcript has been read here by Dolores Perry, the Archives Administration Officer. Bruce Connor was an interdisciplinary artist based in San Francisco. He was born in 1933 worked in the post-war era, and died in 2008. He worked quite broadly in collage, assemblage, drawing, photography, and experimental film. He was heavily focused on and interested in media and popular culture, so television, movies, cartoons, broadcast journalism. He was also very interested in gender and how our understandings of gender are really shaped through the media. 
Connor's oral history was divided into parts across 1973 and 1974 as he spoke with Paul Cummings and Paul Karlstrom from the archive staff, as well as Serge Gilbeau, an art historian who was then in graduate school at UCLA. Emma Amos and Bruce Connor share a lot even through their materials. They both were very much engaged with textiles. Emma Amos even worked as a textile designer for a long time alongside her art practice. She designed rugs. She related deeply to the canvas as a textile. She chose to work with linen canvases over cotton because she preferred their weight and movement. Bruce Connor worked a lot with women's lingerie and nylon in particular. In Bruce Connor's time, I think nylon held a particular significance because during World War II, nylon stockings were really underproduced because most nylon manufacturing was redirected towards the war effort for parachutes and other materials used by the military. Later in her practice, Emma Amos began to use African fabrics like kente cloth and batik prints as borders around her canvases. Listen to history through Carolyn Lazard's headphones. So my first encounter, somewhat embarrassingly, with Emma Amos's work was in the exhibition We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women. I believe the show traveled, but I saw it in Brooklyn, in at the Brooklyn Museum in 2017. And yeah, it was my first time seeing her work. And I think I was just really struck by it. Yeah, I was just really struck with her use of color, but not only her use of color, but, you know, getting back to her ability to represent a kind of Black feminine interiority in some way. So like a lot of her works depict somewhat like mundane, domestic, like interiors, usually with like Black women figures. And what's fascinating is that sometimes those figures are sort of gazing back at us. But it's interesting, like the one, pe- the one painting where she's gazing back at us, but it's actually because she's looking at herself through a mirror. So there are these like really interesting ways in which perspective or the gaze are, are refracted in terms of how like she's looking at herself and, and we're looking at her look at herself that create these like beautiful and simultaneously like kind of unsettling relationships between her as the painter, her as the figure, and then us as consumers uh, or spectators of the artwork that she produces. I tend to like lowercase a art, which means I like things that have a kind of intimate scale. And while her paintings are quite large, I think the scope of the works are, are, are quite intimate in terms of like what they're trying to access. Something I'm really struck by in Amos's interview is her positions on integration and how they kind of change over time. She talks a lot about like working up until this period and integration seems like this kind of through line in, you know, through her discussion of her practice and her life. I finished high school when I was 16, so I was very young. I had skipped a lot of grades and took a lot of tests and got out at 16. So did my brother. He finished when he was 16, too, but I decided I never wanted to set foot in Spelman or any of the colleges in Atlanta. I never applied to them. Instead, I applied to Antioch, which is a school in Ohio. My father went to Wilberforce back in 19-something, and he was always crazy about Antioch. 
It was a good school then, and they had a very progressive policy with their students, and they were interested in the Wilberforce kids. I don't know whether they had Negroes then, but he had the impression that they did. He thought it was a very forward-looking school. In Atlanta, nobody had ever even heard of Antioch, but he decided to apply anyway. And of course, they were thrilled to get a broad mix of students. First, being a Negro, and second, being from the South. They were pleased to have me. I was there from 1953 to 1958. I was an art major at Antioch, and of course it was wonderful. It's a beautiful school, a lovely campus. You work half the year and go to school half the year. I got to work in Chicago and Washington and in New York and really expand. That's where I got to go to galleries and museums. That's when I really got to see the art world. All my friends all went away to school, and we would get together. Even to this day, when I go home, I don't see anybody because there's nobody left I grew up with. The only people I see would be other kids who'd come home from Radcliffe or Vassar. Most of the kids went away to really shiny Ivy League schools, and they all had pretty much the same experience I had. And they were all experimenting and being really white to get as white as they can get and still be black. And you wouldn't even discuss what it was like to be black in a white school because when you admit that there were any problems with it, you know, you might be grinding your teeth at night, but you would never say that you were having great troubles because you were integrating and you figured maybe it would be hard because you came from the South and it wasn't all that easy. So it wasn't just me. Everybody I knew went away to school. And I think it also has to do with her desire to break into like the mainstream art world. But there actually isn't an alternative one either. As far as her experience, she says she didn't really know about any Black painters, you know, or like any Black artists. She like maybe in her home had seen like a Henry O'Tanner or like knew about Augusta Savage in some way, but she doesn't know about Romare Bearden or Jacob Lawrence until she like gets into Spiral. So there's this way in which the even idea of Black artistry feels like a total abstraction for her until like much, much later in life. She even characterizes herself as brainwashed at some point. There's a point at which the interviewer asks her like about some of her influences and she talks about Picasso and Matisse. And then he wonders how she felt about African art and looking at masks and like different kinds of craft works. And she was like, yeah, I kind of studied them technically, but I wasn't really interested in them. I was sort of seeing them refracted through Matisse and Picasso. And that in this way, the concept that like black is beautiful is this thing that comes through Matisse and Picasso is like so strange. It, it's it's kind of interesting that she spends so much time in a way trying to like enter into a kind of like accepted white art world economy. And then simultaneously, modernism is like drawing all of its points of resistance critique, even critique as a position is something that's like deeply indebted to blackness, basically. It feels kind of absurd that white artists have to like go to like black aesthetic traditions as a position from which to critique Western art history. And she's just trying to break into the thing. And then at some point she talks about the studio museum kind of critically. I think she sees it as kind of ghettoizing in a way. She's like, I don't understand why there has to be this 
Black Museum in Harlem. She's actually really critical of a lot of New York institutions. It's a very touchy problem. I gather from the Times this week that they're having the same problem at the Brooklyn Museum with this new director they have there in the new gallery. It's called the Community Gallery, and they held a show of people who feel that they are not just schleps from the community. They feel that they're real artists, and they do it seriously. And though they're showing there this month, they pointed out that they don't like to be shunted into a community gallery. They want the same standards of the museum to be applied to them. And they want to feel that they have selected a group, as a group, to show because they're good, not just because they're creeps who happen to live in the community. I don't want to be segregated into a Black community of artists. I don't think it's important the color of the artist. I think the color of this of his work is important. And I think his work is the important thing. But this doesn't seem to work. It really doesn't. Everyone sees your color. The artist, unfortunately, is a social part of what he does. He has to sell it. And it's killing that he actually has to sell it on the marketplace. But he does. If he's not able to join that central marketing area, he'll never get anywhere. I think one of these years, instead of going around to galleries, I'm just going to go out and buy myself a whole lot of new clothes. (laughs) And I'm going to all the Monday and Tuesday night openings and see if there is a way into that social thing. There must be. There must be a way to get into the real world. But even so, it's foolish to think about it. Because once you got in, you'll be the token. It's rough. A lot of what was so interesting about spending time with her interview is just how little things have changed and how so many of her critiques are like incredibly valid now. Like a week ago, I remember like talking to somebody and being like, education departments are like the backbones of museums. And also, why is it that all of the most like interesting critical art happening by like marginalized artists are mostly being funneled through educational programs and institutions. They're not getting huge solo shows. They're not getting retrospectives. Even 50 years later, like not much has changed. She's not really engaged in like larger politics, you know? She's just like, I just am trying to make black art. I mean, I'm just like interested in this, especially because we're in this really ripe moment of black figuration and painting that is like really contentious and is really exciting and beautiful and also has become like incredibly monetized. So it's interesting that at this moment, she's like very concerned with the idea that like black aesthetics could be codified in any way and in that way be like reproduced. And so in this moment, she's really contending with, is it possible to be black and an artist? And that maybe she feels some hesitation or actually outright rejects the idea of being a Black artist, but is interested in being Black and an artist, but not together. She's like describing this thing and you can kind of hear the frustration in her voice as she's also throughout the interview sort of discussing how difficult it's been for people to take her seriously. I really like her characterization of it. I know people still do this today, but It seems like it was a lot more common back then. She talks about hitting the pavement, which is basically her going around with slides of her artwork to like galleries and trying to sell her work and trying to get people to represent her. And she talks about how demoralizing of an experience it is. I think what she's contending with is like the incredible effort that she's like put into trying to 
establish her life as an artist, as an artist who can make art sustainably, who can live off of making art, and then just being surrounded by people who are like completely oblivious to the fact that there are Black artists around, there are Black artists who are innovating, and that for for whatever reason, nobody's interested. At some point, Al Murray asks her to kind of elaborate on her position around integration and segregation. I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't call it segregation. I think I would call it self-organizing in the face of white supremacy. But I think her sensibility, I think from the time that she was born in and existed, finds a hard time adapting to these changes. But he brings up an interesting point, which is that, you know, in connection to this idea of Black galleries, and to, you know, the very question of like, whether Black galleries should even exist, he says this question of segregation is essentially political, but then sort of differentiates it from the question of a Black, like, okay, the idea that there needs to be a Black gallery to deal with, you know, the fact that Black artists are kept out of the general art economy um, and to deal with the kind of logistics and pragmatics of, of making art in the world. But then he says basically that that might be just, that's political and that might be distinct from an actual artistic or aesthetic point of view. And that like, we do need to think about this question of what he calls a Negro sensibility, um, which is fundamentally another dimension of an American sensibility And she kind of works her way around his claim. Well, I have managed to get around that question by doing a lot of self-portraits. And in this way, I I can rationalize doing somebody Black. Because I'm not Black, but I can make myself look a lot Blacker. And it really has a lot to do with economics, too. I can't afford a model, and I'm doing figures and things now. So I'm always handy, and I just look in the mirror. I've been doing this, I guess, for about four or five years now, and it's fun. It's fun because I can do lots of variations on me. And I think when I first started, I was just using me as a shape, sort of like the little wood dolls that you get in art stores. You know, you can see the arm goes this way and that way to check the shape. Now I've stopped blotting out the things that are black about me, you know, the bone structure, the thickness around the nose and this and that. Let's face the fact that this is me, so go ahead and draw me. And then when I started color, now I make me brown or whatever happens to be what I'm looking for. This is really begging the question, I'm sure. But I don't think I could have done it 10 years ago. I don't think I would have been interested in doing the figure. The colors would have been wrong. Everything would have been wrong. I don't know. Even though it seems like she's kind of resistant to saying this throughout the whole interview, I mean, she does describe this transformation that happens with her, which is that she goes, she even self-describes as being brainwashed, and that at some point she becomes aware of the fact that Black people are beautiful, and that there's nothing wrong with it, and that it's like something to be remarked upon and to be recorded, which gets back to this question of her original heroes, like Picasso and Matisse, and Al Murray asks her, did you see that in Picasso and Matisse? And she's just like, no, I just saw cubism, which is interesting. I mean, that's because, of course, Picasso and Matisse were taking what they wanted from Black art forms and then kind of like abstracting them to their own needs and ends, basically. Well, I said that I started doing the figure. At first, I was just kind of an amorphous shape. 
It got to the point where I wanted the color. I wanted the brown skin against red backgrounds. And I really wanted the texture and the look and the whole thing. And I think it's definitely that I've become aware of black people and that black is beautiful and there's nothing wrong with it. And that it's something to remark upon and to make a record of. I think I would have to qualify as the prime case of a brainwashed person. You know, completely brainwashed. Not able to see anything beautiful and anything to do with being black other than the people who I was proud of. Duke Ellington and people like that. But I swallowed all the other meanness, you know. All the other things. You're not as beautiful. Your features are not as good. You have nothing to offer. You came from nothing and you are nothing. It's that kind of insult that we live with every single day. Bruce Connor made like many incredibly iconic um, experimental film works. Most of his works were made through appropriation. And I think that's what was so kind of radical about them. Just this idea that as assemblage functioned in sculpture, that you could bring the same methodology into filmmaking and just like pull from the myriad forms of media that were available to produce new artworks. Another work of his that's also just been really transformative for me is Report, which takes this short, I mean, it must be like, you know, 15 or 10 or 15 minute newsreel of JFK's assassination. And it is like a, I mean, he, I think he takes even less from the report. It actually might just be a few minutes or a few seconds. And it's like a complete and total remix I don't know how what I would call it. It's just taking this like really particular piece of media and then just kind of cutting it, slashing it, sort of using repetition as the primary mode of engagement with the material, which becomes kind of hypnotic and mesmerizing. And it's a newsreel that includes the footage of when JFK was assassinated. And so you're watching over and over the assassination. You're watching, you know, Jackie Kennedy sort of like reach over and like, you know, all of these kinds of images that are so huge in American visual lexicon, right? Like we all know, if you're from here, you kind of know what this newsreel is. It's somehow like embedded in our psyche. Um, And he sort of attacks this piece of media and kind of remakes it. And it's kind of a controversial work because of the fact that it uses such like sensitive imagery. Before I read Bruce Connors' interviews, I would have thought of him very much as a kind of political artist. But reading them now, I don't know. It seems like um, this was all kind of undifferentiated material for him in a way. He doesn't talk much about the films in here, but in some ways, the films feel a lot more political because they're kind of, yeah, they're responding to this very thing, which is just the way in which media particularly television and maybe even just like Hollywood as its own mythology 
had such a huge influence over popular culture and like how the culture was seeing itself. Well, that's, it's interesting because that's just what I was going to ask you. Do you see an interrelationship between, you know, music, collage, films, drawings? They're all tools. I mean, I mean, they're different forms of things mm-hmm. to use. Mm-hmm. But do you see that, you know, different aspects of the same ideas are expressed through, say, music in this instance, or film, or are they kind of equal but parallel paths that you follow and move from one to the other, or do they blend together at certain points? I'm sure that's all true. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, everything you said is, is all mm-hmm. a part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the same things appearing in different places, things, parallel things. Mm-hmm. Uh, merging from one to another, things that can't be actually don't go into mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. some structure. You know, just it, it's opportune things. It's also like the time that it happens and where the situation is. Mm-hmm. I mean, like uh, producing something at a certain moment in time, I think, has an awful lot to do with mm-hmm. what it means, because at the time it it it's made, it has that time mm-hmm. and then subsequently it's going to continue to change and most a lot of the things in fact most of the things that I've worked on are things that I expected or even pushed them mm-hmm. to make them change like having layers of paint uh, that I know are going to crack mm-hmm. that I know in a period of time sometime in the distant future that paint will come loose mm-hmm. revealing things underneath of it or collages which are like uh, things build on top of other things. It's like, you know, there's a lot of different surfaces. It isn't well, just patterns and such. There are things that are... They're you mean underneath? Underneath, underneath. There's, and then there's also how the potentiality of how somebody's going to relate to it. Because mm-hmm. I never put frames around mm-hmm. those collages, mm-hmm. which was one reason why they didn't sell so well. You know, something was wrong with them because they weren't framed and finished. Well, you know, that was the idea. Why? I mean, if they're a part of your environment, they should be able to sit there in the middle of it. I think Bruce Connor kind of saw himself as making work about social issues, but he was really interested in actually just not to differentiate between politics and media, especially, I mean, for now, but also from that era. He, you know, makes this work about the Black Dahlia murder. He makes a work about, I believe his name was Carol Chessman, about, um, you know, this white incarcerated man who was on death row. But I think what he's interested in is not necessarily like embedded structural issues. I think he's more interested in the way that like media picks up certain things and then like broadcasts them. Like, I think he's interested in like, the spectacularization of narrative in a way. It is adjacent. It is a critical social commentary because the work, these sculptures and these pieces, like the Black Dahlia collages, like they sort of come out of a kind of criticality towards like media and like sensationalization. And then, but at the same time, he kind of like capitalizes on that sensationalization himself. I I have a lot of stories to tell about the world you mean people no it's another art form I mean it's like you know instead of um, writing the words down or, or doing 
a collage which might be like a theater. Mm-hmm. Like the collages that I'd worked on at one time were sort of theater. Like my, I might project or assume the character of a personality. Mm-hmm. Like the person who is producing this is the Black Dahlia and it's also the person that killed the Black Dahlia. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and, you know, it's like theater. Right. Like right, instead right. of there being individual actors performing, I'm mm-hmm. using objects characters. and characters that aren't defined as separate performing characters, mm-hmm. but it's like concepts and mm-hmm. it's like uh, mental attitudes and it's like a relationship of victim to assassin of uh, positive to negative mm-hmm. of lover, but they're both lovers. Right, I mean, like right. it's the both of them. One of them is, you know, like the Black Dahlia is a loose woman within the structure of, of the attack of the man who's destroyed her. But it's all basically uh, love or passion that's been distorted and altered and changed because of some kind of social or cultural imposition. But what I would get back from the culture, the society mm-hmm. would be things like, you know, he must hate women, mm-hmm. which, oh, really? you know, isn't the case at all. Or, uh, you know, like like things which might be critical of the falsity of, uh, of, uh, Why would they say of, that because of, of the nylon stocking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that sort of, the sort of thing which might get attacked as male chauvinist now. Oh. You know, okay. I mean, uh, it, it's a cliche and it's, it's, right. it's a, it's something where somebody doesn't want to get into what it is, basically. Yeah, you know, they're like being very superficial, but it's like that's more or less what the, what the attitude was. It was like mm-hmm. there was such an identification with all this uh, sort of you know high heel shoes, mm-hmm. long fingernails, uh, costume jewelry, and all the disguises mm-hmm. of of women, which are like uh, some kind of theatrics that may disguise really a horrible creature. They are theatrics, not a yeah. k- kind of, they yeah. are. Yeah. Well, sometimes they can just, they can grow out of right. a person's own personal theater. Right. I mean, whatever you wear, I always relate to whatever I wear as a costume in any case, whether it's a suit and tie or whether it's Levi jackets or whatever, and I, and I find people changing their attitude towards me on oh, the role yeah. that I take. Sure, because that's the key, you know, it's a visual key. And and that kind of process that people are going in of recognition or rejection or how they relate to an object or to people is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I've gotten involved in. Like He was able to do that because he was like a San Francisco artist. He really hates being characterized as like a hippie or like a beatnik but obviously was so embedded in beatnik culture. But yeah, this was like a time when white people, and that includes white artists, were in some ways differentiating themselves through the critique of media, which is like what generated basically what our understandings of whiteness are. The image of whiteness is something like that's developed in television, that's developed in moving images. So there actually is a lot of criticality there, but I don't know if he would say it as explicitly as I'm saying it. Well, it was such an exploitation on so many levels of social groups, and the, the parallel was so close. Like, the person who really invented the name Beatnik was not uh, Baghdad by the Bay. 
Mrs. Gekkoff around the East West Gallery. Oh, really? Invented that, and about uh, four so months Sonia later. Gekkoff, is that it? Huh? Sonia. Sonia's mother. And and then uh, I got a real mental block against uh, Baghdad by the Bay. Herb Kane. About four oh, months later, guy. Herb yeah. Kane uh, used the word. And at the, time, the at the time he used it, then you know, said, hey, you, did you notice that Herb Kane used that word that, that uh, Mrs. Gektoff had been calling people? And said, oh, I yeah? Herb Kane, uh, yes, uh, we love each other. <laughs> so, anyway, my first show here in San Francisco was at Mrs. Gektoff's gallery. And I think that one time she took issue. The way I first heard that word was... I think because of a collage that I had, was putting into the show. The show had drawings, watercolors, paintings, collages, sculptures. Pretty small gallery. It was floor to ceiling. And uh, most of the work I had produced before I came to San Francisco and I'd shipped it out. And she, I think it was one of the collages and she said um, something about, uh, you aren't some kind of a beatnik, are you? Mm -hmm. At that time, Sputnik was in the news, and so everything, and everything was, was with a neek at the end. And uh, the, uh, the, I guess Kerouac had called uh, people the Beat Generation, mm -hmm. and she just put a neek on the end of it. She died about six months later, and the gallery closed. And I had no place else to show after that. But did they, and the beat, the beatnik stuff, like when they call you beatnik, okay, was it uh, with the idea of some kind of spiritual? Uh, well, beatnik was a put down. But just only. Yeah. It was a put down. Anybody who would use the name beatnik was exploiting it. You know, and there were people who would move out here from New York and do a bunch of beatnik readings at the, po at the coffee house or have a beatnik painting show. You know, and then they would do a lot of interviews and get written up in national magazines. They would exploit that. The other thing that's interesting is that a lot of Bruce Connor films, the experimental works, were immediately collected by the Library of Congress almost right after they were made, which is kind of interesting which, of course, I'm so grateful for. But then I put that in contrast to an artist like Emma Amos, who was basically like, I have so much storage just full of paintings and paintings, and like I don't know what to do with them. They're just going to like sit there until somebody decides to be interested. So it's interesting to see these two radically different experiences of being an artist in the world, where like Bruce Connor is kind of immediately validated and taken seriously. And, you know, Emma Amos is sitting on artworks, like waiting for somebody to come by and say, you know, this is important. This is worthy of uh, conservation, <laughs> exhibition, whereas he's showing, you know, pretty regularly and not just regularly is seen as a kind of national treasure, you know, two years after making a movie. Rock and roll. I got a call from a guy named... Kipper, Library of Congress, I don't archives, know. whatever they are, they, they want to get separate negatives of my films for preservation. Oh, great. I hope you're going to do it. I told them I would. They said they hadn't got the money for it yet, but it's a project they're going to try to raise money for. I've never shown my paintings anywhere. I got brave about three summers ago, and I took slides of everything, and I marched around after all the galleries had closed. It was the dumbest thing I could do. And I got discouraged going to these places. Everybody looked at my things, which I thought were very good. 
And they said, well, you know, we can't use it. And I can remember Bertha Schaefer before she even looked. She never even saw what I had. She just looked at me and said, I don't care who you are or what you are. I'm booked up for the year. I slunk out, having waited for about 45 minutes to see her. I was altogether all the bad things you hear about trying to find a gallery. I'll never do it again. I will never take my things around because it's too crushing and it's too hard on you. And you don't paint after that. You just stop. No matter where you are, if you are in the middle of a painting, you just go on because you wonder what you're doing it for. You know, you can't sell if you don't have a gallery and it just stops you cold. It's terrible. All the paintings I have are in storage in my studio, which I sublet. There's a prospect now that I'll be going into another studio with some other artists and there I'll get loaded down with more paintings again and I won't know what to do with them. I think for Emma Amos, everything feels consistent with honestly what I would expect from her experience as an artist at the time. Now I'm just doing like character assessments. Um, I think Bruce Connor seems like a resentful, bitter, entitled artist, though I love his work so much. I can understand them in like more situated ways. So Emma Amos moving from you know, the context of a, you know, desire for assimilation, for integration, moving into a historical period of Black power, essentially, seeing Black institutions, Black galleries be built, and how that kind of also was happening alongside kind of transformation in herself and in her own work. And then maybe having a little bit more historical context for Bruce Connor's work, who was making critical, in some ways, subversive political work but in large ways wants to kind of separate himself from like the context of, of the production of the work, like a kind of separation from beatnik culture, even though he was like totally ensconced in it. And then also like a total separation from all of the political activity around the Vietnam War. I guess what I'm saying is I think the relationship between politics and aesthetics are really complicated. And I don't think that there's a good way to like articulate that relationship or a bad way to articulate that relationship. What I am really interested in with both of these artists is the way that they like navigate the art system in their time, which I think is equally prevalent for this moment. Even, you know, I was really thinking a lot about how later on a lot of Bruce Connor's work becomes like responsive to the institution. Like, I don't think anybody would call it institutional critique, but it is kind of like a proto-institutional critique, you know, like making paintings that say touch on them, playing with the context of exhibition, playing with questions of spectatorship. So, yeah, I do in some ways relate to some of that. Um, I think some of those questions are still really urgent, though maybe we explore them under different terms. But yeah, the conditions of art making art production, the art economy haven't shifted so much. I mean, they've just been kind of magnified, you know, in terms of like, who funds these structures, how art gets chosen, what kinds of art end up in institutions. I think, you know, all of it's pretty salient. I was drawn to Emma Amos, because I think she is an incredible artist who's been chronically underappreciated. So I was interested in getting access to understanding 
yeah, just more about her experience and her time, trying to get a little bit more insight into the development of her practice. And even though Bruce Connor had a lot of acknowledgement and success in his time, I also think he's kind of an underappreciated artist. And, you know, somebody who worked in a lot of different mediums, but who really revolutionized our relationship to the moving image. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. The Archives is grateful to Carolyn Lazard for their insight, energy, and capaciousness. We'd also like to thank Dolores Perry for her rereading of Emma Amos's interview. This guest-curated episode received support from the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website, aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.